church, if you will remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. We're going to be in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 together this morning. We're going to read the full chapter. We're going to cover about half the chapter today and the rest of it next week. But let's just see the whole context of it, shall we, this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I that have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without uh, eating any of its fruits? And who, send, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it shreds out the grain. Is it not for the oxen? Is it not? I'm sorry, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do, do you not know that, the, that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrifi sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if, I, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew to, to, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, no, um, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside, of, outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might, have, might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an, we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. 
So let's just do a quick review. Since we've started back up in our First Corinthians series, we have got to talk about sex, sex and marriage, divorce, and today I get to talk about paying pastors. Um, yay. Um, in fact, I think I'd rather go back and talk about sex than to talk to you about my salary, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, although that's really not the main point, we'll see here in just a moment. Let me ask a question this morning of you guys. How many of you guys are runners? Just show of hands, show of hands. Runners. Like, when I say runners, I'm not talking about the fake runners. I'm not talking about the people who come and say, I'm going to, do a, I'm going to prepare for a 5K. You run for like three days and you give up on it. That's me, okay? So runners, like real runners, right? Come on, don't be shy, all right? How many of you have done like a 5K? All right, okay, okay, good. It's going to get lower from here, right? Half marathon? Okay, all right, that's impressive. Full marathon? Ooh, okay, that's actually more than I would have thought in here, honestly. Um, you guys are, some of you guys are overachievers, man. I think a lot of you, that's pretty awesome. I've had like brief stints in my life where running was something that I tried to convince myself I would enjoy doing and that was a short-lived reality uh, for many of us in here. For whatever reason, Lord's always put people in our lives that remind us of running and being in good, good shape, I guess, and being good athletes. And I don't know if the Lord's trying to send a message in that regard to us. He hasn't, that, that message has not been received in some capacities at times. Some of our best friends in the world, as you guys know, are Joe and Sarah Stegall. Joe's the lead pastor at Providence. You actually will, he'll be preaching here at, at the end of October, and I'll go preach for him in November, um, just as a way for us to encourage each other, our churches in the saints there. Um, but if you know anything about them, you know that they're both runners. They both ran for Georgia Tech track and field, I think, in uh, cross country, respectively. Um, and uh, even now, as a family in their 40s and raising up children, they are keeping it in the family. Their oldest daughter just started her freshman year a scholarship at Tennessee Tech. Their next, next uh, oldest daughter, Claire, has broken so many Tennessee state records, if you've been keeping up with this at all. She's this Tennessee state record holder for the 800, the 1600, the indoor mile, the 3200, and she's ranked seventh nationally among all high school female athletes in track and field and cross country. She is quite an impressive young lady. And, um, and, in, and in some of these records she holds, she's beaten her own record several times. She's improved upon it several times. She even now, and, and this is not to make a big deal of her, but I'm just trying to use this as an example this morning, she actually has an NIL deal as a high school student with New Balance that will pay for her to go to different track meets. And eventually, we all know she'll probably get her choice of any school she wants to go to, to college, and perhaps might even be seen in the Olympics one day. Her mother was very, very close. I think she was like maybe a fraction of a second away from uh, qualifying from the, um, for, for the Olympics when she was in college. Here's another stat for you, uh, marathon people. Here in last year's National Marathon, Music City Marathon, the winning time was two hours and 27 minutes. That's roughly five minutes and 39 seconds per mile. What? I don't, even, I don't even understand those numbers. But if you want to know something that's even more impressive, the person who's got the record said, I think set the record a year before. You guys who are marathon people would know this better than I would. But a year before, I think Boston Marathon, the world record right now is a full minute faster than that. Four minutes and 39 seconds. So, so just get this. Someone ran four minutes and 39 seconds one mile. 
and they did it 26 more times. I don't even, I don't even understand those numbers. That, that, I'm, I, I don't even understand those numbers. And we hear about feats like that, and we're left astounded by them, aren't we? I mean, just dumbfounded by them. And, 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 I, and I stand in awe and wonder. I'm not, I don't make fun of it at all. I'm just like, wow, that is, that, that is incredible discipline. It is something to be admired. It's something to uh, make a big deal about here. And we see here at the end of this passage, Paul uses this idea of athletes who discipline themselves for imperishable wreath. How much more should the church discipline ourselves for that which is imperishable um, in this world? Well, that's what we're going to be getting into in this passage today over the next couple of weeks is to consider the larger reason Paul's dealing with the church sacrificing their rights. This is what we dealt with last week. We began this section in chapter 8 of Paul uh, uh, instructing church Christians on how they're to engage in various aspects of society, particularly those aspects that might touch on some idolatrous or formerly idolatrous or uh, false worship aspects of the culture and how Christians should be engaged in those things and particularly how they need to be mindful of their participation in those common culture aspects of life for the sake of their brothers and sisters in, in Christ who were formerly worshipers and formerly uh, pagans and they we don't want to do anything to blur their ability to see Jesus as the true center of all worship. And so Paul's main point of his instruction last week is that love trumps freedom. Always does. Love trumps freedom when it comes to spiritual well-being of our believing brothers and sisters who have not perhaps grown up in their faith fully and don't, don't understand the full weight of their freedom in the gospel. Our freedom becomes a sin for them. It becomes a sin for the weaker brother or sister when we potentially cause them to blur their worship of the one true living God with their possibly the false worship of their former lives. So today Paul advances that topic and uses himself and uses Christian workers, ministry workers and pastors as an example of giving up our rights. And so Paul's big crescendo is going to be in this is where an athlete runs and disciplines his or her body for perishable prizes, not necessarily bad in themselves. How much more should the Christian bridle ourselves to obtain that imperishable prize when Jesus, as we prepare for Jesus's return? And so over the next two weeks, we're going to break chapter nine down into two, uh, two parts. We're going to have one big heading. It's kind of in your guide. I've actually manipulated this, the, the statement a little bit, and that God had, it'll be broken down into two subpoints. So here's the big point of all of chapter nine. Don't miss out on the things that are eternal by living for that which is ultimately will perish. All right? Very simple statement. Don't miss out on the things that are eternal by living for that which is, that, that which will perish. And under that, you can kind of almost see the two points we're going to cover. Today, we're going to cover don't live for things that won't last. Or you might say, surrender our rights to things. Don't surrender our rights. I'm sorry, surrender our rights to things that are less, that won't last, for things that will be, that are greater. And then next week we'll deal with, don't live for that, but, but do live for that which will last forever. And how do we do that with, with the joy of the Lord in us? So we're going to look at that first idea of don't live for things that won't last. And we have a couple of principles we're going to walk through here and points that Paul's trying to make. Let me say something very upfront. We're going to be dealing with Paul's instructions about taking care of pastors and ministry workers and uses his own self as an example of that. That is a point of the text. It's not the point of the text, but it's still a very important point of the text. And so we're going to, he, he builds his argument on setting aside one's rights from this secondary argument, the secondary point in the text of providing, the principle of providing for ministry workers. 
Let's just deal with the elephant in the room here, right? The illustration about paying for ministry workers is, is an important aspect of the church's witness. It's an important aspect of the church's strength and health in the, in the world. And in fact, I said what we said all along when we started Grace Church, and I'll come back and say this a little bit later, we knew that long term we would be a healthier church if we could somehow or another find a way for us to have, at least have the church planner, which would be me, to be given to do this work full time so that the church would have a chance to have more devoted time and focus and leadership in this work here. And I believe, as you, and you guys are a testament to this, that's been true, not because of anything I've done, but because of that commitment that you had, especially those who are here early on, to that um, core principle. Um, so this idea that he's going to get into here about uh, providing for ministry workers, it's not the main point, as I've already said, um, but it's an important point. So there's a point that we need to make about the not central point so we can get to the point. Does that make sense? I know that makes sense. Doesn't even make sense to me, but we're going to try it anyway, right? Right? Paul is making a point out of this point, and it's a huge relevant point. Because it's not just him using himself as an example to sacrifice and, and give up his rights. He, by in turn, is saying, encouraging those of us in this room to give up our rights, particularly rights to our financial means so that we can live and give to something greater than ourselves. And so it's a, kind of a point within a point. And so we'll get the full scope of that as we get into this here in just a few moments. And so here we find in this text, these first few verses, there's some really important instruction, probably some of the clearest instruction in the Bible about how to support the work of those who seek to lead out, those who are frontline workers, if you will, so those who are giving their lives to this and how the church supports that so that the whole church continues to remain healthy, as I've already said. So let's just read here from verses 1 through 7 again, just to remind ourselves, or at least from verses 1 through 3. Am I not free? This is Paul, again, building off of last week's uh, chapter 8. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And this is my defense of those who would examine me. And then he gives you all these different, different defenses of why the, uh, the person who is the ministry worker, the one who's given themselves to this, they should be supported for their work. And he gives out several uh, items that he gives. He, 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 first of all, he says here in these first, views, uh, first verses is that the reason why we support these is because of the fruit that comes out of good biblical ministry, out of good gospel-centered ministry. It, it, it proves the ministry of the worker if the fruit is like the, what is being preached, right? The first reason that Paul points to as evidence that, he, that they should support the work of ministry workers, particularly ministry workers like himself and Barnabas, as he notes here, is that there's fruit in it. And are you not the fruit of that? That's what Paul is saying. Are you not the fruit of that? Many people have been converted by means of the preaching of the gospel that Paul has done and how he's planted these churches and discipled them. And he's saying to them, you are the fruit of that. Look at what he says back in, we've noted this several times, this is Paul's joy, verses 4 through 9 of chapter 1. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that, that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. That's the fruit. 
so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by which you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what Paul is saying, he's going right back to his initial uh, greetings in the letter, and he's saying, you are the fruit of my ministry. I have a right, me and Paul Barnabas and ministry workers have a right to expect the church to support work, when it, especially when it bears the fruit of the gospel, when you can see gospel being clearly seen in the lives of the people that, um, that it is impacting. But he doesn't end there. He makes another argument very quickly. He says it's healthy for ministry workers to enjoy the same good gifts that God has given to others. Look at what it says there on, on, in the next passage there. For, the, um, for verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it just like Barnabas and I who don't have this right? Now, he's not being facetious. He's not trying to be, he's not putting the, the Corinthian church on notice. He's just saying, he's, he's using a line of questioning to basically bear out a bigger point. He says, you understand that this is this, the, the principle here. He's saying, you get where I'm going here with this. But he says, look, ministry workers, pastors who give themselves a local church ministry, um, uh, missionaries that we support overseas, church planters who start good works, uh, uh, whatever they may be, they, they, they should, they, they'll be as healthy as they get to enjoy the same good gifts that, that the rest of the congregation does. Food and drink, not just minimal needs here, but, a, but abundance and the richness of those, because food and drink, what does it represent? Health, right? Doesn't it, almost all the time we see food and drink mentioned in the Bible, doesn't it always relate to feasting and health and abundance in some capacity? That's what Paul has in mind here. Then he talks about the goodness of marriage and family. That's pastors and missionaries should have their have should have the privilege of being married and having children and devoting themselves to that kind of work. And so he goes on and says, like ministry work, ministry work on the front line, soldiers engaged in heavy load of gospel work. They're like soldiers. They're like farmers, and they should enjoy the fruits of their labor so that they can enjoy the good gifts of God's creation, the good gifts of his order in the world. I love that. They're like soldiers. I mean, what soldier goes out there not thinking he's fighting for something that will ultimately benefit him too? I mean, he's putting his life on the line, surely. But not just that, he wants to make sure that his, the life that style he, either he will have after he finishes that war and his family will have will be one worth living. And what farmer goes out there and doesn't, doesn't, he plows a field and doesn't actually want some, reap some benefit from that field. Pastors and ministry workers are real people too. They should enjoy the fruits of God's good gifts, food, drink, marriage, family. And clearly Paul, so Paul doesn't support the notion that you might hear in some Southern Baptist churches when deacons talk about their pastors. Lord, if you keep them humble, what, what you know the best part of this? We'll keep them poor. I kid you not, those are, those are things that are actually said sometimes because they feel like it's their job to keep the pastor humble by keeping him poor. No such notion is even in Scripture. Now, of course, we're not talking about, you know, prosperity gospel here. We're not talking about the church going out here and buying me a jet plane or any of that kind of stuff, right? We're not talking about any of that stuff. We're just talking about the fact that you want your pastors to be able to be able to give themselves to this work and, not, and be freed from the worldly cares and stressors as much as is possible. But it's not just that he gives this line of thinking here in terms of some practical illustrations, he actually goes to the Bible as well. He goes in verse 8 to the law of Moses. Do, not, do I say these things on human authority? In other words, 
it's not just me. It's not just practical wisdom, practical insight I'm getting out here. The law says the same thing, verse 8. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox and when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because of the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much for us to reap material things from you? If others share the rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So that's from Deuteronomy, the, the, the whole uh, uh, ox uh, uh, um, treading out the grain. But the picture there is one where the ox is a picture of a laborer in the Old Testament who leads the way in plowing the hard ground of the harvest, and he's out there in the front so that the rest of the church can come in with that plow ground and do good gospel faithful work when someone else has kind of set the lead for it. And it follows in Paul's thought that those who plow and thresh behind that are also those who get their share from the harvest as well so that they can continue to that work without concern of their worldly needs and free to serve the Lord. This is a wonderful principle in, West, in the Westminster Confession when they talk about the elders is they should be freed from worldly cares. I love that. I think it's absolutely true. 1 Timothy 5, 17 has the same idea. The servant of the Lord is worthy of double honor, you'll find there. The worthy of double honor is not just some spiritual idea of just really, really honor your pastor, right? No, double honor there is, is it was a colloquial way of saying help them in their absolute need so they can be committed and given to that work in its fullest way. His instruction is to those to, to young Timothy, to those who are faithfully worth their share of the church's support, who are giving sacrificially their time and their efforts and leading the way in these things. He also notes down in verse 13 that this pattern was also lived out by the temple workers, wasn't it? Look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. God has always kind of had a system set up, all the way back in the Old Testament, for those who give themselves to full-time or devoted work to uh, the concerns of the spiritual welfare of the people. And we know this in the way he set up the tribes of Israel. Levi, right, the tribe of the Levites, who were they? They were the priestly class. They didn't have a portion in the land, but they lived fully as a, they lived dependent on the other tribes for their welfare as they attended to the spiritual needs of the people of God in the Old Testament. They were to be given some of the fruits of those who were worked out in the world in the marketplace, if you will. That same principle Paul is suggesting is just as equally valid in the New Testament era when you have pastors and evangelists and missionaries and whoever else who are giving themselves to that work. And so Paul is using this illustration as a right that he has. He's not, and that's, isn't that kind of bold? Like it's a right for a pastor to say, I have a right to be paid and, and adequately provided for so that I can give myself to this work. That's kind of bold, right? I mean, I, I mean like, like people who tend to do that in the church tend to be the ones who manipulate people for their money, right? But the Bible does instruct us in these things in some capacity. And I just want to just stop for a moment before we move on to Paul's main point, which is I'm giving up that right. I, I'm not making use of that right. And, I, and we'll find out why here in just a moment. But I want to talk to you just as your pastor for a moment. Well, one is I just want to say thank you. I really want to say thank you, especially for those who've been here since day one and been through this whole process. The, those who've served as elders and deacons who've led the way in setting up this culture here as members of this church who set up the culture here. I just want to say thank you, church, 
for making sure that, by and large, me and Amanda and my kids have been able to give my, have been, have been free for me to give myself to this task from its inception that's almost eight years old. January 6th will be eight years, church. Eight years. I talk to pastors frequently. Just this past week, I talked to a pastor about the reality of their church, what their church pays them, and, 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 and them being moved from an expensive area to another expensive area. Um, and it, it's woefully, in my mind, deficient in what it means for them to raise a family of five or six or whatever it is in this city. Um, some of that, of course, in those churches does not necessarily mean the church is being stingy. Sometimes it's just contextual. The church can't afford to do more than they are. But sometimes it's from bad principles of like, well, the pastor just needs to set the example of kind of a poverty ethic. And so therefore you can't. And friends, I just want to say to you right now, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity from the beginning that our church has done everything that you could for, to make sure that that was not a concern for me and my family. I've had side hustles, yeah. I mean, Uber, I've done Uber there for two or three years. I, I've done counseling. I did counseling because I, want, I didn't want to do it, but I, had, I did it because it was a lot, I, I could do it with concern, you know, commiserate with my ministry. I still do counseling today, but I don't have to do it. I do it because I like it and I enjoy it on the side. Um, I'm just thankful for that. We had lean times in our church where, you know, you're kind of going month to month in terms of what the church is making and what our supporters are giving. And uh, yet, even in those lean, lean times, there was never a time when Delon or Josh or Justin, those early, you know, early days, never one, never one time did anyone come and say, hey, we've got to cut your salary this month because we just don't have it. And that was for your faithfulness and giving is also the priority the church gave to these things. And I'm very thankful for that because I do believe that commitment has bore the fruit that we see in this room today. But let me also say number two, not just thank you, but let me urge you to be thankful for that opportunity. That God has given all of us to participate in sharing in our gifts and our possessions so that we can advance the gospel. We were talking about it in our members class this morning in Acts 2, for those who had to do makeup this morning, we, we had Acts 2 and it says in there they give themselves to the apostles' teaching, but then it goes on through the fruits of the apostles' teaching were that they had all things in common. They were sharing. They, it, wasn't, it wasn't a commune. It was people saying, I'm bringing all myself to this work because it's bigger than me. It's bigger than my family. It's bigger than my own ambitions in this world. And I just want to urge you not that, to, to, that you be thankful to be a part of this. In the same ways that pastors and staff give themselves to the work of ministry, trusting that God will meet their needs and that their needs will be met, man, you and I, as members of this church, get the honor of trusting God with our financial sacrifice and how it plays a role in the larger kingdom advancement as well. And I just want to encourage us to continue to press into that. As we're looking at the future and we, we see the church growing beyond one being a one single staff pastor kind of place and, and we need a building and we're, the room is full every Sunday, like... There, there's some big things coming, and, and, and we would, I would want to encourage you to say, God, I want to be thankful. I want to be joyful. I want to be joyfully generous. Not, not, not giving out a compulsion, but joyfully generous. And I want to see this thing flourish. As long as you'd have this church do that, man, go to God with thankfulness to be part of that. And I promise you, he'll enable you to do so. And so that leads to my last point, is that we would challenge us to strive for more and more in our generosity. Not as some kind of backhanded way to say, do better, but as a, man, let's just have the joy of the Lord in, in, in the work that he's given us to do here. 
And I believe we will. I believe we absolutely will. And so as wonderful as Paul's instructions and frankness of his instructions, and frankly as challenging as those instructions may be to us this morning, Paul's making a bigger point in this, and it is this, that he's foregoing that right, at least in the, in the Corinthian context, which I believe is married to that, for a bigger purpose, which is what? The glory of Jesus. Read verses 12, or the end of uh, verse 12 there in um, chapter 9. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And so he gives now some reasons why he's choosing out of joy to forego those rights, the privilege of foregoing. He actually sees this as a privilege in this, in this situation of foregoing his rights. And he gives a couple of them here that I want to take note of. First of all, foregoing my right prevents me establishing and putting up a barrier between the Corinthian church and you in the gospel. That's what he has there and says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. One of the obstacles in this specific case and why, why he was so 100% opposed to taking a salary or taking provisions from them, at least in this particular point, was because in that culture, there was a high regard for, uh, um, high regard for wisdom teachers and a high regard for orators. And because of this, they tended to be some of the most powerful and sometimes some of the most wealthy people in the city. And so, so, and we understand this, right? We understand that this is kind of the way the world works, and we see this a lot in our American culture. It's what happens when it's passed down throughout the centuries into this modern Western culture that we're in. Compelling orators become, a lot of times in the world, the de facto culture shapers, and oftentimes people flock to them, they praise them, and frankly bow down to them and give their money to them. And so Paul doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want them to see himself as just the new generation of that same old way that they've done things in the Corinthian culture. Paul didn't want to confuse gospel-centered preaching and gospel-centered ministry of the word with the kind of idolatry that oftentimes exists in the world around us. Again, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? See what he's doing there? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, the wisdom, for, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I'm going to keep on going. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast, key word there, in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is not arguing here in this text for some kind of poverty ethic for Christian pastors or even for himself. He is arguing against the cultural idolatry of how we set up certain leaders and personalities and say they are now our de facto gods. We mean to be careful of that. He is arguing that Christians should be mindful of the higher privilege of preaching the gospel, disciple-making, investing in people's lives, regardless of the context of the, in which they happen to minister. And that leads us to a second point that Paul feels is a reason why it's a privilege to forego this right. It is namely this. We picked up on a little bit there in chapter 1. Our boast should only be in the gospel's power, not our own power to transform and build the church. That's where our boast should be. Paul says as much here in verse 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And this is an odd way he says it. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting. What? Like, I don't want anyone to deprive me of my ground for boasting, but then if I preach the gospel, I have no ground for boasting. The phraseology seems a bit odd, because in one sense it seems like Paul is saying, I, I want my ground for boasting, but then if I preach the gospel, I have no ground for boasting. And it sounds like he's talking out both sides of his mouth. But what Paul is really saying here is very, very simple when you kind of pare it down. That his boast is the message of the cross. Very simple. And that also, conversely, it keeps him centered, it keeps him humble, because his ministry isn't about him. It isn't about his skill, it isn't about his oratory skill, it isn't about his winsomeness, it's not even about his compellingness, it's not about his boldness, it's not about his courage. Because he was oftentimes told, you are not a very courageous, you're not a very impressive person, Paul. That's because of that Corinthian culture. And so Paul comes in and he says, no, I boast in Christ and Christ crucified. It's the only hope I have. And brothers and sisters, it's the only hope you have. And because of that, that leads to a third point of why he finds such joy in setting aside this right. The necessity laid upon himself to do the work in any and every season of life, regardless of the provisions he has provided for. That the Christian worker does the work a true Christian worker will do the work regardless. Regardless. I remember having conversations when we were trying to set everything up here, and, and, and I'm not putting this on myself in any such a way, but I just remembered the feeling, the sense, and I remember talking to Joe and John when we were starting a church from Providence. I just remember thinking, like, I, was, I wanted to be a part of this work, and I, wanted, and I asked God to give me the attitude, I will lead and pastor this church whether the church is able to pay me or not. I had a friend at a church we were at in North Carolina. He was the middle school minister, and he used to say things like, "If the Lord, I love this church so much, if, the, if, if, if Pastor David Horner came into my office and said, I don't have room for you on our pastoral staff, but I need someone to clean toilets, he said, I would clean toilets. I don't care. I'll do it. I love the church. That's the kind of attitude you want in your Christian workers. And it's not always easy to have that attitude. I mean, we have concerns, right? And, and sometimes those concerns can, can, can cause anxiety and, and burden. But Paul welcomes that burden. He welcomes that anxiety. And he encourages, he encourages the church to understand that's what the, a real good gospel faithful person will do. Because they'll do it because regardless if the church pays his bills or not, they find joy in the work. 
Now look, Paul was supported. Paul was a tent maker in this context, but Paul was supported. We see in other parts of the Bible that he, he asked for provisions, he asked for offerings to provide for his work and his ministry, him and Barnabas' ministry. So it, it, Paul is not opposed to pastors saying and missionaries doing what is necessary to provide for their work, in fact, and then, frankly, compelling the church to do so. So the, Paul is not saying here, hey, pastor, take one for the team. Hey, missionary, take one for the team. He's just saying the attitude is, I love Jesus and I love the church no matter what. I will do whatever is necessary in that moment to make sure the church is well cared for, well shepherded, well led, if it has anything to do with me. And then he concludes, at least for this morning, concludes with this thought in verse 17 and 18. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. Um, but if I do not do it of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. So look what his attitude is. It has nothing really to do with my own will. I have the joy of knowing the reward, but if I don't do it, I just do it because I'm compelled to. I've still got the stewardship, and I still get to, I still get to be part of something bigger than myself. What then is my reward then? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my rights in the gospel. He's saying to this Corinthian church, I'm not invoking this right for you because I don't want you to confuse worship of Jesus with the worship of your false, like, celebrity culture in Corinth. Church, I want to say this, and we've got to be very careful. We have that same problem in the evangelical church in America today. Where we, we, we celebrate celebrity culture of Christianity. And it's just, it, it's, just, it's just several degrees down from what Paul's dealing with here in chapter 9. The reward of being called to preach the gospel and live as ambassadors for all of us, friends, brothers and sisters, should be enough to forego the perishing privileges we enjoy in this life for the future rewards that we will inherit when Jesus returns. That make sense? Let me say that again. I don't want you to miss that. The reward of being able, being called and being, to preach the gospel and live as ambassadors in this life is enough to forego the perishing privileges we enjoy in this life for the future rewards that we will inherit upon Jesus' return. And again, I think sometimes in westernized Christianity, we get these things confused and we say, if, if, you know, if you don't have big platforms, you don't have this or whatever, like somehow or another we get those things confused. And, and I also go so far as to say this too, and in our American culture, we sometimes live too much for our own freedoms and our own rights. And we're very quick to do that. Uh, Justin prayed as much in his prayer a little while ago. And there's all kinds of good things that we want to protect, Yes. But at the end of the day, what rights we have in this earthly space pale in, compare, pale in comparison to the glory we will receive when we meet Jesus one day and we live for eternity in heaven, yes? And we get to dwell in that new heavens and new earth forever and ever and ever. The Christian must always keep that question before ourselves, yes? Is my rights in this earthly space, in this temporal space, do they trump the beauty of the rights that I'm going to have when I stand as a blood-bought, saved Christian when my Savior returns one day? Always has got to be the main question we ask ourselves. Whether you live in America or you end up being going to live in the former SSR in one of those countries over there. We have, you know, I mean, it's, it's it being a Christian there and the, and the implications of that's very difficult and different than here. Or going to some, you know, closed Muslim country. Please don't import 
our temporary freedoms and rights that we have in this context and somehow or another put them over top of the gospel and confuse Christians, confuse those who are not Christians with what with the things that we might love in this, in this space versus the things that we should love that will never, ever perish. And I'm fearful sometimes Christians do that way too easily. And I see this on both sides of the aisle, you know, proverbially speaking, speaking and culturally speaking, okay? And so, friends, this morning what I want to do is simply do this. Jim's going to come in here in a minute, and he's going to lead us in a time for our Lord's Supper as we do each and every week. And as we prepare for the table, I, don't, I want you to come knowing that you don't give anything here. And that's profoundly good for you. Like, that's the one thing we don't want to do. We want to see the gospel here, yes? You don't come giving anything here at this table. You don't come offering a better version of yourself. You don't come cleaning yourself up worthy of coming to the table. You come worthy to this table because Christ gave his life for you. And because Christ gave his life to you, he is worth you giving everything you have until he returns. Amen? Father, help us this morning as we come and prepare ourselves for the table this morning. May your people be edified by the time we spent in the Word. And Father, that we might be both challenged to how we might participate more freely in the work of the gospel, to give our time, our talent, our treasures, to give all these things so that we forsake our rights so that the gospel might be known in the world. And so Father, as your people hear these words, I pray that we would do so not because we are patting someone's bank account, but we're doing so because we want to empower more gospel events in this city and in this world. But Father, we don't do that out of self-effort, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We do so because you have given your life for us and made, it, made us worthy of coming to the table. We love you, Jesus. Help us now as we come to the table with glad hearts. It's in Christ's name. Amen.